1 John 2, 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This was my text last Wednesday night, and I covered this passage in detail. And I, I wanted it, though, as a foundation for the theme of failing forward. But then I'd like for you to please turn to Luke chapter 2, verses 31 and 32. Luke chapter 22, 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So I want to speak again tonight on the subject, the making of a disciple. And I felt like I needed to continue the theme of failing forward from last week. God bless you. Thank you for standing. The most loved words in Pentecost, you may be seated. Most of you anticipated that anyway, so. Now, I mentioned last week that um, there was a book entitled Failing Forward, written by John Maxwell, and I really didn't mine anything from there, but I spent a little time reading through. I recommend this book to you, by the way, and because not all failure is a result of sin or sinful failure, I wanted to make a few remarks about overcoming the general failures that all of us face in life. One man said, there is no doubt in my mind that there are many ways to be a winner, but there is only really one way to be a loser. And that is to fail and not to look beyond your failure. How people see failure and deal with it, whether they possess the ability to look beyond it and keep achieving impacts every aspect of their lives. There were several statements of contrast that I thought were worth mentioning here today that the difference between failing backwards and failing forward may be between whether or not you blame others or whether you blame others or take responsibility. You can repeat the same mistakes or you can learn from your mistakes. You can expect to never fail again. That would be unrealistic. Or you can realize that failure is a part of progress in our lives. You can expect to continually fail or you can maintain a positive attitude that you will overcome failure and do better. And you can uh, be limited by your past mistakes, or you can take new risks and try again. And there are lots of, lots of examples of people in business, people in life, who failed many times but got up again and went on to succeed. And then ultimately, and I think this is probably the great underlying factor is that you can either think you're a failure as a person or you can believe that something didn't work. I tried something that didn't work, but I will try again. As we were worshiping tonight, I thought about not this statement, but the idea that Satan plants in the minds of God's people that they are failures, that they are imposters, that they are destined to mess up, backslide, not make it to heaven, and he plants that in the hearts of people. And you have to make up your mind whether you're going to quit, 
or you're going to persevere to fail forward. So I want to begin where I ended last Wednesday night with covering a passage of Scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul's writing to this church, Corinthians, the second epistle, and he tells them, I know I made you sorry in a letter. I rebuked you for your behavior. And he said, I'm really not sorry that I wrote that letter, though I felt badly about it. And I'm paraphrasing kind of an interesting passage in the King James. Then he tells them, and this is the heart of where I ended last week, 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. There is godly sorrow that draws you to God. There's a sorrow of the world that drives you away from God. And you should know when you feel that emotion, when you think those thoughts, that if it is drawing you toward repentance, prayer, consecration, that that's an indicator that God is doing that. He's drawing you to Him. But when you feel condemned, worthless, when you feel that it drives you away from God, you don't want to pray, you don't want to come to church, you don't want to engage online, you just feel miserable, you want to go hide under a rock somewhere, that did not come from God. That is condemnation. It could be the feeling of guilt, thoughts of guilt, it could be psychological guilt, that is not godly sorrow. It is the sorrow of the world. And when God convicts you, In Acts chapter 2, in the King James, they were pricked in their heart. They were cut in their heart. When the Lord told Saul, it is hard for you to kick against those ox goads that are kind of stabbing you in the direction of repentance. It is hard for you to kick against those pricks that that are really moving you toward me. That is godly sorrow. And how you respond to what is happening inside your heart will depend whether you fail forward or you fail and your failure is fatal and final. So I think it's important for us to understand the difference between godly sorrow, or we would call it conviction in the church, and condemnation that drives you away from God. Romans 8 chapter 1 said, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. So we need to understand this. Uh, Satan tries to tell people that you failed, you can't live for God, and you might as well give up. And I'm repeating myself that godly sorrow says, yes, you failed, you messed up, fess up, Make it right, get up, and fail forward. Don't let your failure be final. Now, I want to give you two examples tonight of one man who failed and his failure was fatal, and another man who failed forward. They're relatively common characters in the Bible, but hopefully I can share some insights that will help you see what was going on in their head and heart that caused their failure. I want to talk to you about Judas Iscariot and Simon Peter. First, Judas Iscariot was chosen by Jesus Christ to be a disciple. 
He was an apostle of the Lamb. He was the only disciple from the province of Judea, from the city of Cariot. I was fascinated to be reminded that three times, at least in the Bible, he is referred to as Simon's son. Now, maybe you'd like to do a, a study and figure out who Simon was. I tried and don't seem to know, but Jesus thought it was important to say who he was. He was Simon's son. He's given the job as the treasurer of the 12 apostles. The Bible said he had the bag that carried the coins, and he was a guy who would go buy provisions. Uh, at the end, when he goes out into the night, the disciples thought that Jesus had dispatched him to go buy provisions for the Passover. So that's who Judas is. Uh, I think he must have had a problem with money. Eventually, he certainly did. And you would think that, that if God knew you had a certain issue, that he would never put that issue in your life. Judas had a problem with money or greed, and Jesus made him the treasurer. I'm just going to put this right in your face to see what you do with that. There's a moment when the clash of values between the greed of Judas and the love of Jesus Christ came to the surface. In Matthew chapter 26, Mark 14, and John 12, all of these gospels tell this story where Mary takes a pound of ointment, this very costly spikenard. She anoints the feet of Jesus, wipes his feet with her long hair, and the house is filled with the odor of that ointment. Now the other gospels tell us the disciples were indignant, but John tells us that it was Judas specifically which should betray him, John 12 and 4, if you're taking notes or following along, the passages that I chose to not display because there's too many. And he asked the question, why? Why was this ointment, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Now, to Judas, it was a waste. And perhaps to the other disciples, it was a waste of money. But what they called waste, Jesus called worship. And it was for the anointing of his burial. Well, Jesus knew the real motives of Judas, that he was a thief, that he had embezzled money from the church. And Jesus said this. John makes his comment in, in John 12 and 6. He had the bag and he bare that which was in. Now, this is a complex story, but this act of worship that Judas saw really bothered him. 300 pence is a lot of money, denarii. Uh, this expensive perfume, to say it was expensive is an understatement. It would be reckoned in our modern times, you can't really just do an equivalent to money. It was one year's wages for a working man. So you just go ahead and figure out how much you make in the course of an entire year, and that's how much money that perfume was worth when Mary broke the seal and poured it out on the, on the feet of Jesus, spilling on the ground, never to be recovered again, and Judas saw that it was an awful lot of money. 
the median income in Atlanta is like $34,000. Let's just say it was $34,000 poured out on the ground. And you carry the bag. You have the bank account. And you're a crook as Judas was. This single event seemed to polarize Judas and drive him away from Jesus Christ. It was from this point, Matthew tells us, that then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests. And he asked them, what will you give me? That's a great statement, right? What will you give me? What will you give me and I will deliver him to you? And they covenanted with him. They made a deal of 30 pieces of silver. And from that time, and it's interesting that in the book of Matthew, there are three places that use this phrase, from that time, and they are all turning points in the book of Matthew. The phrase is used in John 6 as well, but that's the only time outside of those other, the book of Matthew that that phrase is used in the Gospels. From that time, Judas, something turned in him where he sought opportunity to betray Jesus Christ. The values of Jesus, the values of Judas Iscariot, also, I mean, obviously they're on different planets and this is not going to work. Judas it seems to be repulsed by the perceived weakness of Jesus. He would have gone along with a revolt, an insurrection that overthrew the Roman government. But the idea that Jesus would die was not what he was in this for. So Judas is ready to destroy Jesus Christ. He's, he's going to make a little money. Ask him, what is it worth? Now, according to Exodus chapter 21, 32, 30 pieces of silver was the price of a common slave. So here's Judas. You think about 300 denarii, a year's wages poured out on the ground. When he goes to the chief priest, I think he could have named his price. They hated Jesus so much they would have given Judas anything in the world to deliver him into their hands to betray him. Now, Jesus was wildly popular. Judas agrees to do this at, at a time when the crowds are not around. That's why the Garden of Gethsemane. That's why at night. But I think he could have named his price. 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave. Are you kidding me? But I can just tell you this, that it doesn't matter the price you name, but when you sell your soul and when you sell out your Savior, it is not worth it. I know that's an understatement, right? Just go ahead and make a deal with the devil. You know, there are stories of people who sold their soul to the devil and they got fame and they got money but they ended up in hell, and it is never, ever worth it. Mark 14 tells us that when the chief priests heard this, they were glad. No, I just put that in my notes because I thought that was an interesting response to them. Finally, we have found someone who's an insider. We've been looking for this guy, and now he's come, and they wanted him to find a time when he could conveniently 
betray him. The convenience would happen at night. Luke 22, 6 tells us that he sought this opportunity to betray him in the absence of the multitude. They're following him everywhere, so we're going to have to think this through. Now, there are two different places, Luke 22 and John 13, that tell us that Satan entered Judas Iscariot. Now, this is, we believe the Bible. I know this is true. I'm not questioning that. But you have to see him that he is still there. He's still in the picture. And yet Satan has entered a man who is in the inner circle of the twelve. Who is trusted to be the treasurer. Who went to church. But his decisions and his deception opened his spirit for Satan to actually possess him for him to do this deed. It is kind of hard to fathom that someone who had been so closely connected with Jesus would be possessed by the devil himself. John 13, 28 tells us that when Judas dips in the sop, only John the beloved would know. I've mentioned this recently. He's leaning over on Jesus. Jesus tells him that the person who dips in the sop and Judas does that. And by the way, That would indicate Judas is fairly close to Jesus in that setting. Probably, you know, reclined on couches around a table and there is the meal there. And he dips in that sop. That's what the honored guest would do. The piece of meat wrapped in bread, dipped in the juice. Doesn't that sound good right now? Who else didn't eat dinner tonight, right? And Judas gets that that preferred portion, right? And then as soon as he does that, uh, he leaves. And the other disciples are, are kind of clueless. You know, sometimes we think we're really spiritual, right? We're really perceptive. Oh, that person's got a bad spirit. Well, Judas had a bad spirit. And no one else knew but Jesus, and I know he had told John. The Bible tells this, John 13, 28, that no man at the table knew What intent he spake with when Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. They thought that Judas, because he had the bag, that he was to go buy the things. I mentioned this earlier, but this is where it's in my notes. Or that he should give something to the poor. They thought maybe Jesus whispered to Judas, you know, there's some poor people and you've got the bag. And that's that's how blinded they were to this man who's a part of the twelve. Now, we know these stories at some, to some level, but it is the 30 pieces of silver after the communion supper, the washing of feet, Jesus and his disciples minus Judas go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the Bible said that he resorted often there. He went there to pray. I'm not going to take the time to go through the prayer, the great drops of blood the disciples sleeping, the three times that he prays, if you thought you'd be willing, let this cup pass for me. But after, after he finishes praying, Jesus says something to the disciples that I have said to my family many times when we've been eating and I was ready to go, when Jesus said to them, rise, let us be going. I really quote this scripture. Justin gave me a pocket knife with this reference engraved on it. That's how, how epic it is in our family. 
And as the disciples stand up to go, here comes Judas. Matthew tells us one of the 12. He just makes sure we know this is that same man. Can you imagine one of the 12? And there is with him a great multitude with swords and staves. They've come from the chief priests and elders of the people. And he had told them that I will give that Eastern greeting, that brotherly kiss when I betray him. And the Bible said in Matthew 26, 50, that Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? And they took and laid hands on him. Are you going to betray me with a kiss? The kisses of an enemy are deceitful, right? But the wounds of a friend are faithful. Now, Again, there's much more to this story than just Judas. But after this betrayal, and and this is kind of the heart of the story of Judas. After all of this, Judas has a change of mind. And the reason I pointed out the fact that Satan entered him, even though he's being influenced by Satan to do this despicable deed, Judas has a change of heart, mind at some level. The Bible said in Matthew chapter 27 that Judas repented himself. Now, you remember Esau could not find a place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. I mentioned earlier that godly sorrow works repentance, but godly sorrow is not repentance. Crying is not repentance. Being sorry is not repentance. Repentance is a change of mind and it is coming back to Jesus Christ. It is it's failing forward. So I understand what the Bible says here. He repents himself. He's sorry that he did it. The Bible said he was condemned. He saw Jesus was condemned. He brought again the 30 pieces of silver. And he openly confesses to these chief priests, I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? That's your problem, Judas. You can take care of that yourself. And the Bible said that he took the 30 pieces of silver and he cast them into the temple. I visualize those coins bouncing and rolling and there on that pavement of the temple as Judas regrets his decision. I have sinned, he says. Publicly telling the chief priests, I've betrayed innocent blood. Now the question, Judas, what will you do? Now I know every believer, every Bible reader knows what Judas is going to do. But the Bible is very clear that Judas had a choice. We all have a choice. We can fail forward. Had Judas committed the unpardonable sin? Not according to the Bible. But the Bible clearly says that Judas went out into the night and overcome with condemnation, he hanged himself. The chief priests had an issue. We've got, go pick up those 30 pieces of silver. We can't put them in the offering basket. We can't put it in the treasury. This is the price 
of blood. So they went out and they bought a potter's field. You may remember me talking about a potter's field last Wednesday night. That's toward the end of my message. It's where the rejects go. It's where the discarded vessels go. And for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave, they went out and they bought a potter's field. It was a place to bury strangers in, people who died while passing through or spending some time in Jerusalem, who had no relatives, who had no burying place. And that field was called a seldoma or the field of blood unto this day. That's the end of the story of Judas. Except when you go to the book of Acts, and when the apostle Peter is directing traffic to replace Judas as one of the twelve, and the lot will fall on Matthias, there's an interesting account of this in Acts 1 and 16, when he's talking about Judas. He was numbered with us. He obtained part of this ministry And it says, now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the mist and all his bowels gushed out, pardon me. And it is known to all the dwellers of Jerusalem, it is called a seldom of the field of blood. It is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate and no man dwell therein and let his position as a bishop another take. Now, I've read this account and, you know, for what it's worth, this seems to be so ironic to me. Judas hangs himself. According to Acts, does the rope break? How long is he there? But the Bible said that he fell into this field that he purchased with the reward of blood money and his his bowels gushed out there. I... I don't know that you would try to prove this from Scripture, but what a tragic ending that Judas hanged himself and that evidently, according to the book of Acts chapter 1, that he ended up dying. Something happened with the rope or the limb or whatever he hanged himself on. Jesus would be hanged on a tree of sorts. And the failure of Judas was fatal and it was final. For him, there was no coming back. Now, on the other hand, you have Simon Peter. Jesus said to him, this is our text tonight. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you're converted, strengthen the brethren. Now, this is somewhat reminiscent of the book of Job, that Satan has targeted Simon Peter. He wants to do what anyone in that day would do with with grain, you would sift it and you would separate the husk from the kernel and, and you would blow away the husk, that chaff the Bible speaks about so often and, and you would preserve the grain. He's going to see what Peter is really made of. He's going to tempt him. He will test him. And he tells Simon that he's going to fail. He's going to fall. But I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. Now the Bible said that faith is believing that God exists, Hebrews eleven six, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. 
Now, last week I talked about this. I drilled down into some of these passages about the unpardonable sin. And faith is believing that you can come back. Faith is believing that there is hope if you will repent, that he will reward you if you'll diligently seek him. But this recovery for Simon Peter would involve a a conversion, a change of mind for Peter to fail forward. Now, Simon Peter does not know that there's failure in him. He does a little heart check, and he's like, you know, for the first time, Jesus is wrong. The Bible doesn't say that, but sorry, Jesus. And he tells the Lord this. Lord, this is Luke twenty-two thirty-three. I am ready to go with thee, both to prison and to death. Now, it's very interesting because Jesus had spoke about prison and Peter would go to prison later. And he would go to the place of death later. But he wasn't prepared for that then. Later, he would die for Jesus, but, but not now. And Jesus said to him in verse 34... I tell thee, Peter, the cock will not crow this day before thou shalt deny that you know me. Now, this really troubled Simon Peter. But we know in this story that rather deny himself, he will deny Jesus. And rather laying down his life, he will preserve his life. And he will seek to save his life by saying, I don't even know the man. But this can be forgiven if he will repent. Now, if I'm Simon Peter, and we're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and here come the soldiers, and they've got lanterns and spears and swords and Judas's to kiss. And, and so, you know, Simon, Luke 22, tells us this. He draws his sword, but he is not a soldier. He's a fisherman. He's probably filleted a lot of fish. But he's not been in a lot of sword fights. He swings his sword. He misses the head of Malchus. Cuts off his ear. And to his humiliation, Jesus picks the ear up off the ground. He puts it back on the servant and heals him. Now if I'm one of the soldiers that day, I am leaving Jesus alone. I mean, we know that when... They said, are you he? He said, I am he. And they fell backward on the ground. I would have gone the other way and said, you guys can have him, not me. So I think Simon Peter puts, you know, puts the sword away. Jesus tells him to. And he's proud of himself. You told me I was going to deny you, but not me, Jesus. Look at me fighting for you in the Garden of Gethsemane, surrounded by all these soldiers. But it's been a long time now, but I taught or preached here that the real battle is after the battle. So the Bible says that it is Jesus. This is confusing to Simon Peter. It's like the difference in values. You know, I'm fighting for you and you heal the man I'm trying to kill. I'm trying to protect you and you won't let me. So they lead Jesus away. And the Bible says in Luke 22 that Peter followed afar off. That's a dangerous place to be at a distance of Jesus. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the judgment hall there, they sat down together and Peter sat down among them. It wasn't very long until a little girl, a young girl, 
not a woman, just a girl, looked at him and looked at the others sitting around the fire and she said, this man was also with him. Jesus is over there being tried. This fellow was with him. He's a Galilean. And Peter says, man, no, she says, Peter says to her, uh, I don't know him. A little while, another saw him and said, uh, you were also with him. And Peter said, man, I am not. Another hour of a truth, this fellow was with him. He's a Galilean. Peter said, I know not. Matthew adds that he cursed and swore with an oath. Back to being a cussing fisherman when the nets break. Or something like that. And Luke says, while Simon Peter was still speaking, the cuss words, the swearing, the denials were coming out of his mouth. In the distance, the crowing of a rooster brought him to his senses. Luke twenty-two sixty-one, And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. So when you really see where Peter was, where Jesus was, that he was within eyesight of Jesus being tried and that Jesus could turn around and lock eyes with Simon Peter. And Peter remembered. That's a horrible thing sometimes. You remember your promises? You remember what you told the Lord you were going to do or not do. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. So here is the moment of truth. Right now, at this moment, the story of Judas and the story of Peter sound strangely familiar, don't they? Both denials both going out into the night. I'm sure there was plenty of rope and there were plenty of trees. The apostle Peter sure knew how to tie a noose. But he didn't. After the resurrection, Peter is with John running to the tomb, wondering what has come to pass. He's being given a chance to fail forward. In the empty tomb, the angel says to go your way and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. The apostle Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 15 and 4 that Jesus specifically appeared to Cephas. He was seen of Cephas, then the twelve. And then John 21. So after the resurrection, he's seen the Lord. Simon Peter's with some of the other disciples. And he said, guys, I'm going fishing. Sounds like a great idea. They went too. And they fished all night. Sounds like the beginning of their ministry, right? Caught nothing. In the morning, Jesus is on the shore. And they don't know that it is Jesus. And he asks them, did you guys catch anything? And they said no. And he told them, cast your net on the right side of the ship. And 
They did, and they got so many fish that they could not draw it up. And then John said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter knew it, he jumped in. He's about a hundred yards from land, and he swims to shore there. When he gets there, there's Jesus, and he has a fire of coals. I preached about this fire before because the other fire of coals was in Pilate's judgment hall. It was a fire of failure. And Peter had been living between these two fires, guilt-ridden, seen the Lord, not fully reconciled. And there he is with the Lord on the shore and Jesus has fish already there. And three times he asked Simon Peter, Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my lambs. Do you love me, Simon Peter? And the Bible said Peter was grieved. I don't think he was angry at Jesus. He's like, how agonizing is this interrogation? Three denials, three confessions. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Simon Peter failed miserably. But his failure was not fatal. His failure was not final. He legitimately failed forward. And I told you in the beginning of these two stories that I know that they're fairly common to us. That each of us has a choice to make every time we don't follow through with a good intention. Each of us has a choice to make every time we fail and sin. We can either fail backwards, we can fall out of the church, or we can fail forward. Brother Jeremy Painter is a professor at Urshan Graduate School of Theology. and Not long ago, Brother David Jury was there for the symposium, and Brother Jeremy Painter spoke on the subject, Religion for Losers. He's a brilliant wordsmith, and I I wanted to read his words that are somewhat of a summary of what I've just said. He said, how about Christianity's chief apostle, the apostle Peter? What kind of loser do we have here? One night he swears he'll always come to Jesus' defense, no matter the cost. The very next night, as a unit of soldiers come to arrest the minor irritant Jesus, Peter so ably defends his master that he takes a swing, not at one of the arresting soldiers. No, he's so incompetent that he directs the attack at an unarmed slave. At close quarters, he aims for the head, misses, catching only an ear. He abandons the one to whom 24 hours earlier... He swore an undying allegiance, incredibly un-Roman. In this, the end of Peter's, is this the end of Peter's disgraceful night? No. In this comedy of errors, he has at least one more show of incompetence outside City Hall while his master is standing bound and shivering on this cold, late winter, early spring twilight powerful enemies all around, Peter is caught warming himself by a fire. 
Three figures accuse him of being one of Jesus' disciples. Are these also powerful interrogators? Not in the least. The first accusation comes from a slave. And please note the text of John draws particular attention to the fact that she's a slave girl. Not only a slave who would have no standing in the ancient world. Not only a woman but a girl. Peter the Great. Peter the Saint. Peter the Shepherd. Peter the Prince. Peter the Rock. Here he is. Disarmed and rendered utterly craven by a mere girl. To put Peter's cowardice in perspective, while Peter is busy distancing himself from Jesus, Judas Iscariot heads back to Caiaphas' house, where he will publicly, at greatest risk, confess his sins in the innocence of Jesus. His contrition is so complete that to secure Jesus' freedom, he's willing even to part with the ill-gotten coins, the only thing it seems that Jesus, that Judas ever left. The difference between Peter and Judas, Peter might have been sorrowful once the cock crowed, but he also lived to see the celebration of Pentecost, only, not only because he was less remorseful than Judas, but an eerie reverse mirror image of Jesus hung himself from a tree. And he says in conclusion in this theme of a religion for losers, but only a religion for losers would choose a Simon Peter to deliver its inaugural address, and yet Christianity did. Simon Peter failed forward. And there is no doubt that every one of us will at some time fail to meet God's demands or our own expectations and when we do, our failure can be final. Our failure can be fatal. Or like Simon Peter, we can fail full. Jesus said to Simon, I have prayed for you. And I want to encourage you to pray for people who are being attacked by Satan, who are facing temptation in their lives. Because your prayers, just like the prayers of Jesus Christ, can make a difference. And then I mentioned this earlier, that I think the key of Jesus' prayer was, Simon, I am praying for you that your faith will not fail. You will fail. You will deny me. But faith is believing that God will reward you if you'll seek Him. So in the middle of his failure, Simon Peter never lost this faith that if he would come back, that Jesus would forgive him and would restore him. And that is the difference. That is the only difference between whether or not you make heaven your home or you split hell wide open, as they say. It is not a matter of whether or not you will fail. But it's what you do when you do. And Jesus said, when you're converted, when you turn back to me, strengthen the brethren. I want to read two verses of Scripture and would you stand as I do. 1 John 2, 1. I read these verses last week. My little children, John said, These things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And going backwards in 1 John 
chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Last Wednesday, I read from Hebrews 10, where the writer says, Cast not away your confidence. Don't give up. He said, we're not the quitting kind. We're not the kind of people that just throw in the towel and walk away. But we are the kind of people that believe to the saving of the soul. He tells us that the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, if you just walk away, I'll have no delight in him. I want us to pray right now that the Lord would help us and not just help us who are standing here or watching online, but people who are struggling, people that maybe have going through a, a season right now of discouragement, and they're right in that place of whether they're going to be Judas or Simon Peter. Judas or Simon Peter. I'm not talking about just taking their life, but are, are they just walking away? being driven away by condemnation? Are they going to be drawn back by conviction of sin that there is hope if I will repent?